Saturday. Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up the world, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. They never will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone I am speaking to you from freezing Westchester But this is going to be so much fun Sage Web is here We had some technical difficulties last time A couple of storms, a couple of internet Flukes and she's back with the Venturi effect, and this is going to be so cool. Good morning, and welcome back to MJ Network. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me back. This is really exciting. Yes, I know. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the fun part about this book is that you bring back memories. Except Devin Winters was suspended as a lawyer and became a carney. My favorite place growing up not too long ago, was um, Coney Island. And I loved the Cornies. And I loved playing the games, but I was never good at the one that she did, you know, throwing the thing. Right. So what, I, I, I hated that, but I was great at skee balls and Pocino and all the rest of it. I loved it. It was so much fun. And, of course, since I can't drive, it was fun crashing the cars in the car game. It was fun. But <laughs> how, why did she become a Carney? I mean, that's so cool, really. So Devlin, I think, I hope she comes across as a bit of a complicated character. She grew up kind of wealthy, affluent, privileged, goes to law school, has sort of a brilliant legal career, and then crashes and burns. She makes partner at a large Chicago firm, kind of the world is her oyster. But then she starts to feel the effects of the the stress of the demands that have been placed on her of the profession, and she just starts imploding. And so eventually she ends up defending a governor of Illinois who's charged with some federal offenses and gets into an altercation during trial with her client and punches him in the face. And so obviously uh, courts and judges and bar associations don't look kindly on that kind of behavior. So Devlin finds her law license suspended. And rather than trying to find a new career or a new outlet, all she wants to do is crawl away. She's disgraced in front of her peers. She's long been estranged from her family. So she decides that the best way to deal with her problems is to run away. So she moves from Chicago to the Galveston Bay area, um, south of Houston, just north of the island of Galveston. And she takes up life on an old wooden boat because she grew up sailing and she remembers kind of the quiet and the peace of being near the water and being on boats. So she decides to live on this boat. And in order to avoid stress and to give herself something to do, she becomes a carny on the local boardwalk. Uh, The boardwalk here is actually based on a real place, Hema, Texas. It's a lot of fun to go there. It's near where I live on a boat. And there are a lot of carnies there in the afternoon and evening barking. Well, pre-COVID, they were all barking, 
to get kids involved and with their games and to give families a fun thing to do. And so Devlin takes up with this new profession. Money isn't really an issue for her because of the savings she has, but her mental health definitely is. And so she finds this as a way to have a less stressful existence. Well, maybe on January 1st, something wonderful will happen, and this virus will take a hike somewhere else forever. And I nobody know, else, I know. I know. I, I am, the only thing that good that's happening on Friday is that my niece's song is coming out on iTunes, YouTube, and everywhere, and Spotify. Each of Heart Out by Carly Megan is airing itself on Friday. So I'm hoping to God that it'll air something wonderful like getting rid of this virus and telling it to go to a different planet somewhere else. So oh, that's exciting this, for her, though. That's great. It is exciting for her, and the sweatshirt I created that I'm going to be wearing all over the place on Friday should let everybody know that she's she's famous or somehow because I I have her picture oh. on it and everything. I I do crazy things, yeah. So just wanting the easy life, how does she become embroiled in the lives of Niles and Vigio Bryson? That was a brave thing to do, seriously. So Devin grew up with these two brothers back in Chicago from a young childhood. They were about four or five years old when they met. They lived in the same building on the shore of Lake Michigan, downtown Chicago. And she has a long history with Nils and Vigo. Nils was actually her first boyfriend, sort of as a teenager. She was, you know, kind of very much in puppy love with him. She used to race sailboats with him. And then he kind of jilted her, just ghosted her, went off to college and dropped her. And it really hurt her, kind of left a deep scar. Um, She hasn't had a whole lot of, for various reasons, she Mm. hasn't had many meaningful relationships since then. As to Vigo, he's kind of the evil older brother. He's very opportunistic. He wants to make money no matter the cost. He doesn't seem to care much about people other than his own son, who becomes an issue in the book. But the way Devlin gets embroiled in these two brothers' lives again is rather by chance. One day, Nils shows up on the boardwalk with Vigo's son, whose name is Grant, so Nils' nephew, and they're strolling along looking at the carnival games, and they end up in front of Devlin's game. And Devlin sort of recognizes Nils and all of a sudden has this flashback from her past that's not welcome. This isn't something she was looking for. And pretty soon she finds herself back in their lives because Vigo has been charged with a federal fraud offense. And now his nephew is facing foster care and ultimately, um, I won't give away too much, but Nils gets pulled in and Devlin finds herself maybe back feeling some, uh, you know, emotional attachment to him and wants to come to his rescue. I don't blame her. After teaching for a million years, I dealt with foster care. And I know just how incredibly horrible sometimes they could be. And sometimes like, not everybody is bad, not everybody is good. So when I had to save a child from foster care or a foster parent, you just do it. It's tough. But I can understand why she went, went in, you know, head-to-head to save Grant. So tell us about St. Kitts and Nevis and who owns it. So St. Kitts and Nevis is actually, as of the early 80s, an independent island nation, the Federation of St. Kitts and Nevis. And it's part of the Commonwealth because it was part of the British Empire. 
traditionally the economy relied on sugar. And then over the last several decades, they've seen a shift toward sort of a more diversified economy, but with a lot of emphasis on tourism. And the reason it becomes a setting for the story is in a lot of ways, uh, the, the Caribbean nations and the islands there are um, host to a lot of offshore banking because of banking laws and unfortunately with some of the fraud defendants you see in federal court in the United States, it's because of extradition laws. Um, these nations don't always extradite for certain fraud offenses, so it can be hard to prosecute Americans who go there to concoct their nefarious fraud schemes. It actually has um, I, I personally know of multiple fraud cases that have arisen because of banking and business um, activities in St. Kitts. Um, but it's also a scene for the, the action here in the Venturi effect because of the Hague Convention mm -hmm. and international kidnapping um, strictures. And here we have an issue where little Grant, Vigo's son, becomes a pawn for the adults mm -hmm. um, as they battle over sort of Vigo and Nils' future. And so when they end up in St. Kitts, there are some issues of whether or not Nils has, quote, quote, kidnapped Grant. And there's a twist with the prosecutor showing up there outside the yeah. jurisdiction. And uh, basically, the island is more than a pretty backdrop. For anyone that wasn't kind of the nerd that wants to look into the background, the legal uh, milieu surrounding it actually has some meaning for the story. Yeah, no, it does. So we have, I don't like these two, by the way, Xavier Charles O'Million Carter. As a prosecutor, he's extremely controlling, and he assesses people. He sort of makes snap judgments. And what are his first impressions about Carter? So, yeah, Xavier is a, a fairly judgmental fellow, um, probably has very unrealistic expectations and a pretty unrealistic, you know, um, love for himself. But his IRS agent helping him with the prosecution of this fraud case is Lillian Carter. Mm -hmm. And initially, he's quite critical of her. He's critical of everybody. Yeah. It's not just her. But he thinks that, you know, her skirts are too short and she acts like a trollop and she's not working hard enough because he pretty much is a hater toward everyone. Um, he definitely has some underlying insecurities, although... Honestly, I think in some ways his heart is in the right place. He wants to do right prosecuting mm -hmm. offenses and serving his country. He just goes about it in a fairly misguided way. But ultimately, Lillian proves him wrong on a lot of levels. Again, not too many spoilers that I want to give away here, but no, um, don't. I, was, I was hoping in creating some of these characters to create a lot of gray area. So that as they grow, they're truly growing as people, and the audience gets to, gets to see maybe the natural, unexpected things that we see in all people as they develop, you know, as they have life serve them off uh, unexpected curveballs, and they've got to adapt. Well, what the, she's very methodical. What else, is it usual for a prosecution to get the jail tape? Yeah. How did she so, manage to do that? So Lillian is very dedicated, and that's part of the uh, curveball story here in terms of Xavier. His expectations are totally blown out of the water by this agent, where he thinks at first that she's not doing a great job. Ultimately, mm -hmm. she proves him quite wrong and is quite a dedicated 
uh, agent quite dedicated in locating and exploiting the evidence against the Bryson brothers. But in terms of the jail calls specifically, this is actually a really common aspect of federal prosecution. If a person is held in custody without um, bond, they're not released back to the community on bail. They're held in a, sometimes a county jail that the federal government has a contract with, or sometimes in a federal facility. But it is very, very common for the U.S. Attorney's Office and the prosecution to ask for recordings of all jail calls that the defendant makes. And they do it, um, there are a couple ways. There are, generally a subpoena will get them the calls. But it's very, very common for agents to go through all the calls and listen for potentially inculpatory statements, um, statements that could lead to other witnesses, statements that demonstrate some sort of alleged obstruction of justice. Um, and they listen to a lot of personal material and often exploit it. So, you know, they may come after family members because of calls that are made. They may put pressure on family members mm -hmm. because of what they hear. Um, and it's becoming, I'd say, in the last four years, a greater and greater issue for judges recognizing some of the um, right to counsel and privacy and constitutional issues with, you know, having defendants who are held with no lifeline to the outside world other than these phones that are constantly mm -hmm. recording what they say. But as the law stands now, this is a pretty common tactic, and it's allowed, and the jail calls that Lillian gets here to help Xavier make his case um, are very typical. This is what would happen in a real prosecution. That's scary. So you have to really be careful when you visit somebody or talk to them about what you say, even though they're supposed to have supposedly have privacy in a room. You don't really believe. Absolutely. I don't believe anything they say. Yeah, I, I'd, be, I'd wonder. Yeah. So she gets involved, and then Niles is indicted. How come? And she's not happy about that either. I get the feeling that she's tossed between being a carny and a lawyer. So, yes, Devlin is highly conflicted. There's still a part of her that's the hyper-competitive perfectionist um, that she thought she had left in Chicago. There's still a part of her heart that lives in that world. And as much yeah. as she wants to deny it, it's nagging at her. So when she starts to get involved, in the defense of her old flame, um, her old boyfriend, Nils, there's also conflict because she feels this emotional attachment to him, but she remembers being hurt. But Nils gets pulled into his brother's fraud scheme because basically he is a family member. Perhaps he made some bad choices. I'll leave that to the reader to decide. Yeah. But it is very, very common for prosecutors to go after family members. So if they mm. believe that they can squeeze a family member and have them turn around and snitch on their loved one, they'll do it. They'll indict them, charge them, and then try to negotiate a plea um, by which the family member will testify against their loved one at trial. It can be very, very, I mean, I'll, I'll use the colloquial here, it can be very savage. I mean, I've seen parents mm -hmm. pleas to testify against children um, and vice versa siblings, um, because in a lot of ways, a lot of federal crime, you are kind of relying on family members because it's sort of that clannish mentality. We'll do this together. We'll keep it secret. And in this case with Nils, um, perhaps he got a little hard up for money a few times. Perhaps he turned to his brother. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a gray area. I'll let the reader decide what they think when they hear the evidence. That is really, I know. It's it's scary. You know, you watch the Lord Order and watch all of those, and sometimes they, you actually see that. 
And it's frightening to think that, that they could do that, but they do because that's how they win sometimes. Sometimes I don't think whether they care whether it's innocent or, or whatever. They just want to win the case, and that bothers me Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So who who is Monique, and why was she granted immunity, and I didn't like her? So Monique's kind of an interesting figure, and again, I won't yeah. I won't give too much away because I'll let the yeah, reader no. decide exactly who she is. But growing up on St. Kitts, she had a relationship with Xavier Charles, whose mother is from the island. He would spend his childhood um, summers on the island, and he knew Monique, who goes on to become um, uh, the, the domestic partner of Vigo Bryson. She ends up being Grant's mom. Um, so she and Vigo have this long-term relationship. They're never actually married, but they have a relationship. They have a child in common. And... Um, Vigo may or may not have, have exploited her in terms of, you know, using her to assist in some of his fraud. But in the end, she's also a very savvy, very intelligent woman who may have used Vigo for her own ends as well. But the problem here is that Grant, their child, gets caught in the middle because Vigo does ultimately um, at least lead the outside world to believe he's estranged from Monique. Um, for his own ends, and he's a little selfish. And she uh, gets in touch with Xavier Charles, her old friend. And again, I won't say too much more, um, because she may or may not have some evidence to offer against the Bryson uh-huh. brothers. And Xavier ends up going to St. Kitts, which he again knows very well because of his family ties to talk to her and to discuss what evidence she might have in the case. And ultimately he gives her immunity, meaning he wants her to come to the United States and testify Uh against the Bryson brothers. And in exchange for doing that, he promises not to prosecute her because she would be safe on St. Kitts. She wouldn't be subject to being, you know, brought before an American court. Uh So she has no reason to leave her Island home and go to the United States where she might be exposed to criminal liability. But he says, come, the government won't prosecute you, and testify against these brothers. And he kind of uses Grant as a pawn. He says he'll help her get her parental rights back to her son if she does it. Um, and so she takes the immunity agreement, and then things don't turn out the way I think anybody expected once she takes the stand at trial. Yeah, she's pretty clever. I don't blame her. So I, I have read so many books that I think I could write a lot book myself maybe who knows never um, <laughs> when you have two defendants and you have two we have two lawyers and two defendants we need more than one lawyer to, in order to defend both of them a trial so who asks the questions of who and how do they how do you do that because in this particular case there are two defendants and it's one trial that's inter- that's interesting and that's a really good question because it does make these trials very complicated in yeah. real life Just like you say, each defendant gets their own lawyer. They have to have a lawyer who has no conflict of interest. So Mm. usually when you're defending someone, you may be tempted to blame the other person who's charged and say, well, it wasn't Mm -hmm. my client's fault. It's the other client. Um, So you need a a lawyer who's not, um, in terms of their loyalty, split between two clients. So each Mm. client has their own uh, attorney at trial. And sometimes it's more than two. You can have trials, a large-scale fraud case that has literally dozens of defendants. So oh, God. even from a 
yeah, from a logistical standpoint, it can get very crowded um, at trial. You're trying to juggle everybody's files and their space at counsel table. And the lawyers do have to work closely, even though they tend to be very independently minded. It's worse than herding cats to try to get lawyers to work together. But they have to come up with a plan to decide who's going to question each witness first. Um, each lawyer will have a chance to question witnesses and to make argument, but they do have to come up with an order for that. They have to agree on certain things like the jury instructions that the judge will give the jury. The judge ultimately tells the jury what the law is and instructs them on how the law works. But each lawyer in the trial has a chance to shape those instructions. So when you're dealing with a prosecutor and then multiple defense attorneys, it can get very contentious. Let's just say contentious. So here with the two brothers, um, we have Devlin and we have a woman named Eileen who is defending Vigo. And fortunately for Devlin, they get along very well. Um, Irene's very outgoing and giving and helps Devlin ease back into the law and mm-hmm. the practice. Um, but in real life, it is often um, a much different situation with defense counsel even becoming quite antagonistic toward each other because they are trying to, you know, throw the other person's client under the proverbial bus. That's scary. You know, what bothers me is that um, I, I watch programs and I watch the television and I watch juries. How do they know that they really understand what they're supposed to do? How do you know that when somebody says they're not guilty or guilty, that the jury really gets the point? Do they really care? Do they, I mean, they supposedly know. a jury of your peers, but I often wonder sometimes if these people actually comprehend what you're supposed to say or, or understand what they're doing, or just they pick people because they figure they're going to side with me on my, on my whatever. That's scary, and you you would know that. It's very scary, and there is a lot of intuition involved. I personally do trust the jury system. I think there are a lot of flaws with it, but I think it's about the best kind of option that we've come up with. But the problem is, first, that it often is not truly a jury of your peers. There are a lot of socioeconomic and racial, ethnic, linguistic issues. It's very hard to get a jury that looks, thinks, lives like a defendant. Um, it, It depends where you live, but often diversity is a very, very serious issue. The other issue is just exactly what you're saying, understanding. These are very technical instructions that the court gives, very technical issues. Um, I'll skip away from fraud and the, the Venturi effect here just to talk a little more broadly. You often get cases with um, death involved. A, a very hot issue in federal court right now is the distribution of controlled substances that kill uh-huh. people. Essentially, fentanyl has become a very, very popular street drug when it's often laced with heroin, and people are o- 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 overdosing, ODing often, and dying. And now you're asking a jury to come in and determine cause of death, listening to multiple pathologists and medical experts and toxicologists. And the testimony gets very technical. And you're wondering if the jury would understand this. But on the flip side, I come back to a quote from G.K. Chesterton, who was a peer of C.S. Lewis. 
And Chesterton said that when a really grave matter comes up, when something truly, truly important arises, we don't go and get an expert. We don't get a doctor or a lawyer uh-huh. or someone who supposedly has this expertise. We go and get 12 people off the street with their common sense, and we ask them to sit down and talk about it. And as strange as that sounds, there actually is a brilliance to it. There is a common sense in the community that doesn't always render the right result, but it often does render some semblance of justice, or at least frequently enough that the system seems to work often. Again, it's not perfect, but there are a lot of flaws with depending on academics and experts as well. So I'm not sure what the perfect answer is, but our jury system is pretty special. I remember when I lived in the Bronx up until right before I moved. I'll never forget this. Unfortunately, I got called, and they were sorry that I did. <laughs> um, they, they, it was an accident case, an ambulance driver and a, and a brother-in-law and a sister-in-law. And they said that they, they talked about it, and I said, is the, brother, the brother-in-law and the sister-in-law in the same car? I said, are they suing each other, or are they working together to get the money? And they dropped me. They said, you're too smart. You figured it out. Oh, no. Oh, no. The ambulance driver, you, ambulance driver, I don't know who was at fault. The ambulance driver, too. And I said, this is a very strange case. I don't know where I brought it. I go, you got to be kidding me. They're possibly working as a kid. They're in the same car. They're suing each other. They're probably going to have money. And they said, you're too smart. You probably would have been me. a great juror, too, and really analyzed everything. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't because I didn't want to go. Seriously. No. And I, I, I dread that. But what happens when both sides, the both sides wind up, and then in St. Kitts, and Nils invites himself to be, allows himself to be arrested, and then we find out how Devin really feels about him. She got to watch out. So seriously. So exactly as you say, both sides end up on this small island. Um, Devlin and Nils and their party sail there, hoping to avoid. Um, detection because they don't want their passports flagged by flying there. Um, they're trying to avoid Xavier Charles um, tracking them down and uh, arresting Mills. But and then Xavier ends up there looking for Monique and the evidence that she may have against her paramour, Vigo Bryson. So they find themselves on the island and they find themselves ultimately in a confrontation. And Mills does indeed allow. Uh, Lillian Carter and Xavier Charles to arrest him on behalf of the United States and take him back to the United States for prosecution. And he does so in part to save Grant. Again, uh, Xavier Charles is using this young nine-year-old boy as a pawn um, to try to shape the prosecution, make his job a little easier, because otherwise uh, it would be very hard to get everyone to toe the line in a jurisdiction that's not his. But because mm-hmm. of his ties to the island, again, he's kind of threatening an international kidnapping scandal with Mills um, and threatening to keep Grant on the island and give him back to his mother there. So it becomes very complicated from a family standpoint. But amidst all that complication, Devlin finally, I think, confronts the fact that um, she's attached to Mills again, and she has these romantic feelings toward him, and is heartbroken to see him getting arrested, and is scared, and then has to shake off all this emotion and these fears to come out of retirement and return to the law to defend her, her 
you know, again, I'll use the word old flame. Do they ever, ever ask? I mean, I've seen it on television. I've dealt with it with children in foster care. Do they ever ask the child where they want to be and who they'd rather be with? Absolutely. In real life, in international kidnapping cases and things, and, and I don't do that kind of work, but I have colleagues who do. Um, and none of this, of course, is meant to be legal advice. This is all just storytelling today. But um, yeah. there are many situations where the, the court will ask the child what their thoughts are on the matter, mm-hmm. especially, you know, for older kids. Um, but that is not uncommon at all. And I think very healthy in a lot of ways. Although, again, you get issues of undue parental influence and things. Um, but a lot of times children get quite a say in their own lives, which is good. Which is very true because I went through that a long time ago with my ex-husband's son. His mother and his stepfather were moving to Florida. This is a true story. And he called me up at 12 o'clock at night, and he said, I just want you to know that you better get a lawyer right now because they want to move to move within a couple of days to Florida, and you better figure out a way to stop them. Go, oh, no. Oh, oh Yeah. And he said, and by the way, I'm coming to live with you even if you don't want me. And he was 11, oh. 10 or 11. I said, who asked, who asked you if I want you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, he did. He lived with me. He, we got custody of him because he wanted to have He wanted me to have it. Had to go to court because yeah. $20,000 of my money because even his father didn't think it was a good I thought it was a great idea. And I don't know where he is now, unfortunately. And I did a very good job, but he lived with me for 14 years. Oh, and he had oh, a deal. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he did. And his friends, I, I loved it. You know why? Because he was a teenager, and all of his crazy friends came over. And I never knew when I was coming home from work what I was going to find. I didn't care. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> so he he decided himself. What can I tell you? That's true. So the other part is this is like a Ponzi scheme, the financial scheme behind the insurance company. How did the clients who bought Blue Tide benefit from it? And how come, well, when you get money, very few people question it. They don't care. Exactly. Exactly. This is, it's actually a scheme that had some popularity um, for a while. But, yeah, here we have Vigo Bryson selling these fake insurance products so that companies, um, large corporations can buy them get a tax write-off for the expense of purchasing the insurance. And then Vigo basically kicks back most of the payment, keeping a significant amount for himself, but kicks back most of the very large payment on the insurance to the original buyer or payer of the premium, the, mm-hmm. the one who bought the insurance product, so that everyone wins. Um, they all get a tax benefit from it. Um, they get to, to, you know, pull one over on Uncle Sam. Vigo is making money and everybody's happy. So the people buying the products themselves are very much complicit in the wrongdoing here. But exactly like you say, when people get a chance to make a little extra money, they don't question it often. Um, Too many Mm -hmm. get-rich-quick schemes kind of end badly for everyone involved. And Mm -hmm. here we've got some fairly crooked dealers, and I hope that it comes across to the reader, you know, some of the lackadaisical financial attitudes you sometimes see um, and very much the self-serving aspect of these things. Um, but that's another way that Nils, the brother, gets involved here is um, he has a relationship to the sailing community. He's a competitive sailor and sailing because of the, the cost of the equipment involved, obviously, tends to attract wealthy people. 
and people who maybe want to grow their wealth by uh, ill or misbegotten means. And so he is friends with people that he may or may not lead toward his brother's, you know, ill-conceived insurance company. A lot of people think they could take insurance companies and whatever. It's scary. I mean, some of these, some people actually file claims that are really fraud, fraudulent, and I wonder how many times they actually get caught. That's, it's so sad. It really is. It's, it's frightening that they even tried. They don't care. But tell me so. I, first of all, if I didn't ask this last time. What is the, what is the meaning of the title, the Venturi Effect? Because I did look it up. It has a whole lot of meanings. Yeah, so the Venturi effect is essentially, it, it's a scientific principle, um, but in sailing, the, and I'm not a scientist or engineer or mathematician by any stretch, but in sailing we talk about it because when you funnel flowing water through a narrower space, it starts to move more quickly. So if the tide is running out of a narrow channel, it's going to run very quickly through that narrow space. Or in a non-sailing example, if you're walking down the street um, in a place like Chicago and the buildings are in a narrow, they they narrow in, the wind in that space will be blowing at you um, harder. That narrow space kind of collects the the element, Uh either water or the wind, and it increases the velocity there. So in sailing, you watch out for the Venturi effect because you don't want to be caught in a narrow channel kind of getting washed out by an outgoing tide or what have you. Um, And in this case, I use the title because basically Devlin has tried to be very easygoing. Again, escape that busy, stressful lawyer life she had in Chicago and just sit on the beach in the the Gulf Coast sun and do nothing. And here she gets sucked into this narrow Mm -hmm. channel with this rapid tide pushing her back toward her past and toward the law and toward a lot of things she doesn't want to be embroiled in. And then in the end, she's released and it slows down again um, because that channel has widened and the Venturi effect has released the water and things have slowed down. But that is is the source for the title, perhaps a little esoteric, um, but I thought it had a fun ring to it. It did. It was different. You know, I get emails from partners in crime and everybody all the time and it's very hard to say no this week i just didn't say yes to everything because actually if anybody out there is coming out with something brand new from now until december of 2021 you better tell me because march is gone april's got a few more may's got a few more i just booked tess garrison for june seriously and that's exciting. September, that's exciting. Yeah, not only that, Nancy Allen is writing her next one with James Patterson. I got her in September. And if anybody's had somebody coming out, you better tell me because I don't know why I'm so popular. It's 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 amazing. And it 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 really is amazing. That's really so, exciting well, for us. Yeah. Well, before I forget, Monday, Tuesday, this is going to be really interesting. I have a panel of four people. Dick Belsky, Charles Salzberg, John Land, and Vincent Zandri. We're going to talk about publishing or whatever comes to their mind because I just let them speak and they go at it. I don't care. On Wednesday, oh, on Thursday, it is cool. On Thursday, this is very difficult, very different. I'm only going to say the title of the book. Marilyn Leibowitz wrote a true story, part fact, fact fiction, Jesus, the Rabbi of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. 
On the 11th, we have one of my favorite people, Cindy McDonald, back to the Berg. She's got a new character. On the 13th, the author of Blood Country. On the 18th, Connie DeMarco, The Madness of Mercury. And on the 20th, this is a truly, I was shocked, honor, James Grapando, the 20. He, uh, he yes. asked for the interview. I was like, whoa. And then next month, on February, we have Iris Johansson and Roy. And we have Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. I am totally honored, seriously. And that's just some of what's coming up on MJ Network. So when you do a trial, what is a jury actually allowed to hear? I mean, the, 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 I, I hear opening cases and they say, well, he definitely did it. He's guilty, whatever. And then the other side says the other thing. And I often wonder, what do they really hear? What do they yeah, really believe? That's a really good question because the rules of evidence that apply, we've got a federal set of rules and each state has its own set of rules, um, very much circumscribes what a jury can hear. They don't get yeah. to hear everything that might relate to a case. And these rules, though, serve a very good purpose in that we don't want unreliable evidence coming before a jury mm-hmm. or or evidence that would be, you know, just something that would inflame the anger of the jury. We talk about inflaming their passions, kind of some old-fashioned terms there. But we don't want something that's um, unduly or unfairly prejudicial. We also don't want things that are just speculative, like layers of, well, my nephew's brother's cousin's girlfriend told me. No, we don't do a lot of layers of hearsay. So what a jury hears is generally more direct evidence. In a case Mm -hmm. like this, with with the large-scale fraud, a lot of what's going to be presented and what's going to put the jury to sleep is paper. Mm -hmm. The prosecution will literally go through hundreds, if not thousands, of pages of documents, putting Mm -hmm. them up on the big screen. Now, everything's very, you know, Hollywoodized. Um, with PowerPoint and different programs to be able to blow things up on the big screen and use pointers and have lots of visual aids to try to keep the jurors engaged. But ultimately, you're just looking at thousands of documents related to financial transactions. But they would also be hearing testimony from people who are directly involved. In this case, in the Venturi effect, Lillian Carter, the head agent on the case, would have testified. She would have testified about why she started the investigation, how she found out about the wrongdoing, who she talked to, what she discovered. She would kind of pull all the different puzzle pieces together to give a whole picture, um, according to the government, to the jury. And then after the government puts on its agents, it, it put on Monique Arthurton here with her immunity agreement as someone that is allegedly directly involved with the scheme. She talked about what she had and then maybe talked about some things that the prosecution didn't see Mm -hmm. coming. The prosecution also will commonly present, as they do here in the book, um, what we call snitches. You know, the old who's a rat or snitches get stitches. Um, There's a lot of that kind of cliche slang, but um, these snitches are people who were involved in the scheme but in exchange for lenient sentences, have decided to testify against the people they were involved with. And here there's a a series of people who bought these insurance products, benefited um, quite a a bit financially through their 
you know, malfeasance with these financial products and then decide to testify and blame it all on the Bryson brothers. They get much better sentences. They're trying to avoid prison. Um, so they take the stand and point that finger. And one thing that I hope uh, uh, it comes across as a very subtle undertone is sometimes these snitches feel bad about it. Like they know um, it's a little Machiavellian, you know, their, their end of avoiding prison is may or may not be justifying throwing their former friends in many cases under the bus. But that's what happens here. We've got a couple guys that were pretty close to the Bryson brothers and now they mm-hmm. take the stand and point the finger. So that's some of the evidence that would be presented by the prosecution. And then the defense always has the option of presenting its own evidence, but it has no obligation to do so. The burden of course to prove someone guilty is on the prosecution. Anybody sitting at the defense table is presumed innocent until they are convicted. So they can sit and be silent and say nothing and just say, you know, the government didn't present enough. I'm innocent. And that's completely legitimate. Or they can present their own case with witnesses. Now, I'm wondering, because, you know, you watch, I watch juries and whatever, and of course television is pure fiction. But I'm wondering if anybody of a lawyer ever prosecutor or anybody wants to present a case and they're presenting it so technical that they should have watered it down because the jury has no clue. Are they allowed to ask questions? That's an interesting question. It depends on the jurisdiction, but there are jurisdictions where juries are allowed to ask questions. Um, Mm -hmm. I believe in military tribunals like courts martial, um, the juries are allowed to ask questions. I know that there are some states that allow it. It's very interesting to see that. In I do believe there are some federal courts that may allow it. I would have to look, but I want to say that might be a possibility. But there are tribunals that allow jurors to ask questions. It's interesting. I don't want to ever be on one, but you know me, I would probably ask too many questions, as you could tell. <laughs> This this is something that my dad taught me a long time ago. He said, when you don't know something, find the answers because no one's going to tell it to you, and the only person that's going to find it is you, so you've got to search until you get what you want, and don't stop until you find out the answers. So I guess if I was a – that particular case where I was thrown off, the lawyer said to me, it's too bad we can't have you on my team because you're really smart. I go, no, it's okay. I'll pass. That's all right. <laughs> so creating the final scenes – we realize there's more in store for these characters. Um, where, do you, where are you going to take her next? I hope soon. So, yeah, next year, the sequel is coming out. It's called The Cult of Mammon, and it's going to plop Devlin into a, a much darker situation. This one's a l- fairly significantly darker. There's a fraud scheme again, um, based on fraud schemes that truly happen being run by a fairly dangerous cult that has branches in Hawaii and Southern California. So Devlin's going to be in the deserts of Southern Cal outside San Diego, um, kind of between San Diego County and Imperial Valley. And then she's going to interact with uh, some adventurers on the big island of Hawaii, where the volcano actually was just erupting quite remarkably. Um, and Kilauea and that volcano are actually really close to the scene um, of a few things that happened in the book. So that was exciting. And uh, we're kind of back, though, with the twist. Again, not to give a spoiler here, but 
ultimately it's not a spoiler because you get a little sneak preview at the back of the Venturi effect, but Vigo ends up in prison. So finally justice catches up with him. He ends up in prison and uh, in a twist of certain, you know, in a paradox, Devlin ends up defending him. And I won't say more than that, but on his, yeah, on his behalf, um, she ends up infiltrating a cult. And there's another interesting aspect of uh, American Civil War history that a lot of people don't know about that plays uh, in the backstory of these cult members. So if anyone is a little bit of a Civil War history buff or likes to travel to places like Hawaii, um, the Cult of Mammon might be a fun one to check out. When is it coming out? So it'll be out uh, holidays next year, probably about the same release date as the Venturi Effect, which came out November 15. We're shooting mm-hmm. for something very similar for the Cult of Mammon. Well, you've got to tell me. You've got to send it to me. If you're going to do Cheryl, let me know. And yes. let me know when you want me to book the interview if you want one, because I don't know why I'm so popular. It's it's, it's frightening. It's like, whoa. No, and- I definitely will. I like, I'm already a little worried. It sounds like you're filling up and I can't have that happen. I can't miss the chance to be on here again. <laughs> I know. It's like Nancy Allen texted me the other day. She says to me, uh, I need one in September. I go, wait a minute. And Tess Gerrington, who I love, she's Tess Gerrington is the very first famous New York times author I ever interviewed ever. And she loved me. Thank God. Wow. It's only in Ireland. She she actually said, please make sure that I book something with Gary Braver. Her new book is called Choose Me. It's coming out in June or July or something like wow. that. So I don't do July. I take the month off to recuperate from all of this. But, yeah, so whenever you want it in November, let me know. Find a date somewhere. Sure. And March, people, I have one more date at the end of March. That's it. And then we are done with March. I am so excited. So wow. the final scenes are really interesting, but what about Monique? Oh, but this is the question. You have a character in the series. This is, there's going to be another one. Is it going to be a whole lot of Devlin? And how are you going to keep her fresh? Because, you know, I'm going to want to read all of them, every one of them. Yes, yeah, so pretty much everybody comes back. Um, there's going to be a, a third book as well, but everyone comes back, even Sean Tofalau, Devlin's, Devlin's friend, um, who's another bro- uh-huh. boat broker. And it was interesting. I've heard several people now mention how much they hope he comes back. And he yeah, will be too. featured, yeah, quite a bit in the Cult of Mammon. Um, but everybody's coming back. So Grant will be back. Monique will be back. The Cult of Mammon won't feature Monique and Grant quite so much, but Sean does have a much larger role in that one. And Devlin will be staying fresh because – She's wrestling with a lot in terms of her return to a more conventional lifestyle. She's still living on a boat in the second book, um, and she's dating Nils, but she's got some conflict about what she's given up in terms of exchanging her lackadaisical, rather alcohol-fueled boat life for the more staid existence of a criminal defense attorney who's practicing again. Uh, she's fighting some of her demons still in terms of alcoholism, and she's fighting a lot of her feelings about Neil. She's very insecure with the relationship and where it's going. She wants it to work out, uh, but she worries about his commitment. And so that's a very strong kind of undercurrent in the book is that the development of that relationship. Which Otherwise, she kind of could bring seen... somebody else in. She can meet somebody else in her field. What can I say? 
sometimes yeah, you got to right. branch out, people. <laughs> and who knows? These characters seem to do a lot on their own without asking permission. <laughs> I know. I, I don't trust him. That's beside the point. So what about Monique? Is she coming back? She is coming back. She won't be strongly featured in The Cult of Mammon, but there is a role for her in uh, future books for sure. What about Grant? Where does he wind up? I love that kid. So Grant is growing up a little bit in The Cult of Mammon. He's becoming a little bit more childlike. In The Venturi Effect, he's very precocious. He's very He's like a small yeah. adult, kind of nervous and reserved. He's very feeling dispirited because his father's been taken away from him. He doesn't know what's happening. His father doesn't want him to know about the fraud charges or the indictment. Um, so Grant is in a position where he's being kept in the dark by these adults and used as a pawn. In the cult of Mammon, he's finally coming into his own as a child. His father's in prison. Um, his mom is on St. Kitts, and so he's actually living with Devlin and Mills um, in sort of a parental son relationship. And that's another aspect of Devlin's personal journey in the second book is she, it, it, in her adult life, had not seen herself becoming a mother. It's something she had wanted to do when she mm-hmm. was younger. But when she had become a lawyer, she knew she didn't have time, and she'd kind of given up aspirations of motherhood. Now she's given an opportunity to be a mother to Grant, and she loves it, but it scares her. And so that is part of the underlying kind of subtle theme in the second book. Well, how does a child deal with the fact that their father is a criminal in jail? That must be hard, too. Doesn't he need some kind of help or something to deal with that? In real life, it is all too common, and it is it's heartbreaking because it does create a system where, you know, prosecution and um, incarceration become normalized in families. Yeah. And it can happen across socioeconomic lines. Generally, it's much harder, obviously, on families that struggle financially because they may not be able yeah. to get support for children when parents are incarcerated. But it can happen no matter where people fall on the socioeconomic scale. Because when a parent is taken away, it very often foster care becomes an issue because there may be no one to take care of that child. Um, Mm -hmm. The child becomes definitely an aspect of the collateral damage of a a criminal conviction. And too often we see, um, you know, the only provider for the child taken away a lot of these kids are from you know single parent homes Um, they lose Mm -hmm. their parent to the the custodial system and now it's a question of what does the child do and the resentment and the anger and the lack of understanding of the circumstances and things builds up in that kid and they're acting out and they're doing poorly in school and next thing you know they can be in trouble themselves and it is a terrible cycle and I don't have an answer to it but I I will say one little political plug is I think that this country does subscribe to the idea of mass incarceration too much. Um, Locking people up, you know, doesn't always solve the problem and it can have these collateral consequences that create more problems. I I agree with you on that one. Yeah. In Grant's case, he does adjust pretty well. Like Mills and Devlin are stepping in and trying to, to, you know, give him a, a childhood that has a certain, you know, levity to it and happiness. 
I, I love Grant. You know, I dealt, like I said, I dealt with foster care. I dealt with parents. I mean, I'll never forget this. There was a little boy in my second grade class, one of my classes, and the parents were fighting for custody. But no one could figure out who he belonged to, who he should live with. Oh. No one figured out who the, which, the father and the mother were in school all the time. And I had the door locked. I had a, and one day the, father, the mother, father came to the door, and I got him waited with him. The mother tried to break the glass down, and he didn't, she didn't see her son because I, I told him to go in the clothing closet so nobody could see him. And then did, I had to call down on my cell phone and tell them that I need the guard to come up because these two crazy people were fighting outside my door. You never knew oh. what was going to happen. We took that. Yeah. Uh, this, this was true. I mean, I, I was, I'm little. And at that time, I mean, I had to run fast. Well, I took the class down to the auditorium. When I saw the father coming one way, I took the little boy and ran as fast as I could into the principal's office and locked him in there and said, no more. I said, I can't do oh. this anymore. The little boy was a sweetheart. I said, but you better figure this out because I'm not going to go through this every single day. I didn't know yeah. who was crazier, the mother or the father. And this does happen. And the system works sometimes, and sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't work. That's what's really yeah. scary. So before we end, where can we find out more about you and your work so everybody could read the Venturi Effect? Because this is on a lot of issues, especially with child custody and caring and wanting to know who you really are. I think Devin, Devlin is finally figuring out who she wants to be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually today the ebook is free on Amazon. So if you just go on Amazon and find the Venturi Effect by Sage Web, it's it's a free download today. And you can oh, also good. find me on yeah. And you can find me online at sageweb.com. Um, web is W E B B and Sage is just like it sounds S A G E. And I also participate in a group that really works and strives to promote people publishing with independent presses and getting the word out about books that aren't coming out of the big five and that have so much to offer and may just not have the same marketing thrust behind them. And so that is at readlocalbooks.org, readlocalbooks.org. My own work is up there, but we, we just do reviews for independent press books we love. We talk about issues with publishing and we just have some fun, you know, promoting books off the beaten path. Well, that's good. And for those people like myself that don't have all these people behind them, um, Owl and a Pussycat um, is promoting, they're promoting my books on Facebook, and they're $110 for the year, and they promote one of my books every single week, every single day. Oh, wow. And it's seriously, wow. well, it's a, Karen, if you check Karen Vaughn, she'll, she'll tell you. Karen is very good. They do post all of my books, and one one a week. They are posting, and I can't tell you whether anybody is buying them or whatever, but they really do a great job in promoting them. And I was very excited because some people have been buying my Kindle, and they don't get a very you don't get very much. But when I got the little, you know, uh, Amazon whatever royalty this week, which wasn't very much, I got all excited. Go wait, somebody actually read my book. What can I say? That's but, um, great. Well, I'm writing my new one. And I never say anything about what I'm writing, but yeah, my new book is called A World Without People. No, oh, wow. It's a world with, yeah, and it's got eight worlds in it that I created. And the fun part about it, Sage, is I can't be wrong, it's my imagination. However, I think the world looks in this particular area one is a world with no sun, one is a world with just ice and polar, one is a world that was uh, in glass and plexiglass, but the glass broke, so. The fear, air filters died. I don't have to be right. It's just my imagination. 
doesn't matter. And How interesting, though. This is really, I don't know where I came up with this. And then I invite one person that to come back alive and, and experience whatever the world is and tell the world what they think. And then maybe when everybody finishes reading it, if I ever sit down and write it again, um, they'll stop acting like fools in this one and get the point. That's why I'm writing it. Wow. Wow. It's just me. But I want to thank you so much. Whenever you want the interview, just email me. This has been fun. I'm so glad we didn't have technical difficulties today. And hopefully we won't have any next week when it's supposed to snow again. Thank you so much. Everybody, it's how much, what's the weather forecast here? Okay, here we go. Sorry, it's 28. It's 30 degrees as a heat wave today. Oh, no. Oh, yep. no. Every, yep. Everybody have a great day. Sage, stay safe. And before I end, how I end every single show, just one small ask. I'll protect you. You protect me. Please don't go outside without wearing a mask. Thank you so much. Everybody have a great day, and bye. Thank you.